like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. And I also want to be sure that whether you're in a small group or not, that you get a study guide this morning and that you um, consider the questions this week. In fact, as we start out today, I'd like to read the questions that I've asked. Because the study guide is to help you cement into your heart and spirit the word that you hear during the message, and the questions kind of help provoke those thoughts. Um, Many of them I'll be answering as we move along through the Scripture this morning, but let's look at the questions for a moment. In what ways is the marriage relationship as God originally designed it very much like His relationship with us? As you consider Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, what parallels can you draw between the relationship of marriage and our relationship to Jesus Christ? Number three, are we married to Christ in this present time? What does Ephesians 5 say about our relationship to Christ right now? How is it that believing Jews from the Old Testament era are now folded into the body of Christ no longer viewed as the wife of God, but the bride of the Son. Number four, did God explain His relationship to us in terms of marriage, or did He design marriage after the pattern of His relationship with us? Number five, can you discern the difference between the nature of being a person made in the image of God being male or female, and being husband or wife. Now, you may think you know the answer to that right off the top of your head, but I want you to think about it this week. Six, is being a husband or a wife a role which we choose when we marry? How do you who are men relate to being the bride or the wife of Jesus Christ? How does that work? And numbers, you know, somebody's, I've told you before, somebody's written a book, and a lot of people have written similar books along the theme, Why Men Hate Church, you know, and, and, and they always get around to the idea that, you know, church is so soft, and it's so kind of uh, emotional and gushy, and then we talk about how we love Jesus, and it's like, that's that's not manly, you know, and, and how does that fit, and... um you know, but guys, we have a tender side, I hope. You know, when you, when you hold a baby, when you hold your son or your grandson or your granddaughter or whatever, or, uh, you know, I see a lot of tenderness in men. Maybe they don't want it to be seen all the time, but it's there. And uh, that, you know, and I hope we love, you know, love deeply from the heart. And uh, I hope we love each other. We may not go around saying that to one another all the time, but I hope it's true. I hope it's there and that it's not so strange. Uh, I don't know. The world gets an odd uh, perspective. And then seven, while we're going down this narrow winding road, (laughs) if there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, will we still be male and female people. Think about that very carefully. Um, and so you can contemplate those questions this week and in your small groups. That should give you plenty of food.
for discussion and uh, conversation. As we come this morning to the final uh, image, the final metaphor that we have in the New Testament about what is the church? What, what is the church like? And we've learned that it is described in various ways. The church is a flock with a great shepherd. The church is a temple, a living house. Not the building, but the people, living stones. Um, we've talked about the church being a body. Um, now we come to, uh, of the seven that we've considered, we come this morning to the church is a bride. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And this helps us to understand something of the nature of the church when we consider the church as the bride of Christ. And uh, when we begin to look at that, it's interesting to me to, to, to discover two things. The first is, <clears throat> the actual terminology, the bride of Christ, is used very sparsely in the Scriptures. In fact, you will only find it in Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 19. Those are the only two places where the church is specifically viewed in terms of a bride. And, and it's clearly stated. But the other thing that is obvious to me throughout all of Scripture is that there is an analogy from the beginning to the end of a relationship with God that is constantly viewed as a marriage relationship. And so in the Old Testament, you, you have the prophets speaking of the church as if, or, or, or the nation of Israel as if she is the wife of God, who has, in most cases in the prophets, been unfaithful. But the concept of that relationship, that Israel was, was kind of like the wife to God. He betrothed her, he loved her, he called her to himself, she resisted him and rejected him. But there is that kind of thing going on all through the Old Testament that Israel is related to God in this way. And then, when we come to the New Testament, we find that that imagery translates over to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church in such a way that He Himself calls Himself the Bridegroom. And when you look at those parallel passages that I've listed for you in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, all three of those are basically the same story. Some of the uh, religious leaders are coming to Jesus and they're saying, how come your disciples don't act very religious? They don't fast. They don't put on sackcloth and ashes. They're not acting very religious. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't fast and do that kind of stuff while the bridegroom is present. After he's gone, then they will fast and do these religious-looking things. But right now, the bridegroom is here. And he calls himself the bridegroom. And that's the first introduction we have in the New Testament, that there is something going on that Jesus himself identifies as a relationship like marriage. And he calls himself the bridegroom. One of the things when we go back... And we look at all of Scripture. One of the themes that, that runs through all of Scripture and the great plot of the Bible is that it is a love story. It's a love story. And it's the story of a love that is lost. 
and then is recovered again. And it is so obvious in the pages of Scripture that some people have even written books with titles like The Divine Romance. But even aside from that particular book, many, many writers through the centuries have seen the, the divine romance in Scripture as God woos a lost humanity back to His heart because He wants to have with us a relationship that is not based on fear, that is not based on obedience out of fear, but is based on love and passion that in turn drives obedience and conformity to His desires because we love Him so very much. And if you go back all the way to the beginning and you look at at God's motivation in creating man, and when I say man, now I'm speaking of mankind, God desired human beings who would have fellowship with Him, be intimate with Him, walk with Him, enjoy the glory of His creation with Him, bask in who He is, and worship Him from hearts that were just enraptured with His person. God desired that. Now, I want to be very, very careful that we split our theological hairs accurately here. Because it is true to say that God does not need people. In fact, it is true to say that God is entirely self-sustaining and needs nothing to be who He is and be complete. But in, in a sense, that makes it to me even more special that even though God does not need creation or need humanity, He wants us. That's very clearly evident in the Scripture. He wants us. And He made us in His image. And after His own likeness, that we might share certain attributes with Him. Obviously, those are not physical attributes necessarily. God is a spirit. He, he doesn't have a body per se. But they are person attributes. A thinking being. A feeling or emotional being. A choosing, willing being. Uh, someone who is able to think and feel and choose from the heart and respond with intelligence and purpose God looked for and made a, a, a human race that could relate to Him in a similar way to His own character and, and respond to Him in freedom. And so when you go to Genesis and you find the creation story there and God making man in His own image, I think that what God did was that He created marriage to show us what it was like to be in an intimate relationship with Him. 
You know, God could have done anything he wanted to do. And God did not have to make sex. He didn't, he didn't need to do that. He didn't have to make men and women. He could have made us asexual. A lot of plants and animals, usually the, the smaller ones, um, reproduce asexually. They just divide. You know, so he could have designed us in such a way that we were asexual beings walking down the street one day and all of a sudden, you know, part, part of my, one leg and arm goes that way and the other and then I hobble for a while until the others pop out and now I'm two people and, and I go on about my... He could have done that. <laughs> I know that seems silly. You guys think I've lost my mind. Really, I haven't. But, but the point is God could have done that and He didn't. He didn't, I think... Because he wanted to show us a different kind of relationship. And we get some insight into that in Genesis chapter 5 where it says, So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them and he called their name Adam. Let me paraphrase that for you in the sense of what the verse really actually means. It says, God made man in his own image. God made humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, and together he called them humankind after his own likeness. What is that saying to us? There's no question throughout Scripture that God is always referred to in the masculine sense. But there is also no getting around the fact that oftentimes the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit takes on characteristics typically ascribed to motherhood. That there are certain things that the Holy Spirit does that are very much like the way a mother cares for her children. And the truth of the matter is, is that in human beings, to get the full impression of the character of God from human beings, you have to have both men and women. One or the other is inadequate to reflect the whole nature and attribute of God. He created us male and female. And He did so, I believe, because in that relationship that he then called marriage as he instituted it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, cling to her, be devoted to her, and those two will become one flesh. Paul quotes that in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I am speaking to you about Jesus Christ and the church. And God wanted to give us a picture of His relationship with us. And the intimacy and the depth and the, and the romance and the love that is involved in that relationship at a level that we could understand it in terms of marriage. Which is, in human terms, the, the, the highest, deepest, richest, most intimate form of loving relationship between human beings. God says when you look at a good marriage, you are seeing a picture 
of what my relationship with you is like. And so throughout the scripture, we have this imagery. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. John the Baptist, also in John chapter 3, the the apostle John chapter 3, verse uh, 39, uh, 29, John speaks of John the Baptist. His disciples come and say, you know, who are you? Are are you the, the promised Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. I'm like the friend of the bridegroom. Again, John the Baptist is thinking of Jesus in, in marital terms. He says, he's the bridegroom, I'm like the friend. And then in, in Matthew chapter 25, as the disciples have come to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and the signs of the end of the age. What are we supposed to be looking for? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew 24 and 25 in various ways. But when he comes to chapter 25, he says, my return, the, the signs of my return, my coming, are going to be like this. And he told a story. He said there were ten virgins who were part of a bridal party. And uh, it was about time for the marriage feast. And um, they had, uh, had prepared themselves and gotten ready for the wedding. And all of a sudden, things were delayed. And, and time went along. And, and they got drowsy. And eventually, uh, they all fell asleep. And then there came a shout, the bridegroom is coming. And they woke up and five of them had failed to provide adequate oil for their lamps. So their lamps had gone out and they couldn't see. I'll explain this all a little more in detail in a few minutes. But the point is five of them were ill prepared. And so the bridegroom was coming and the other five said, well, we don't have enough to share, so you're on your own. And they took off to meet the bridegroom and the others were kind of left behind. And, and eventually, uh, you know, they came and found the wedding party, but it was too late and they couldn't get in. And the story goes on like that. And J- Jesus says at the end of the story, he says, so learn the lesson, be prepared because the Son of Man is going to come at a time when you least expect him. In other words, when someone says, he is here, or lo, he is over there, or no, he came back the other day, or when is he ever going to come, he says, you always be ready, because he will come at a time when you least expect him. But he used the illustration of a marriage feast and the bridal party waiting for the bridegroom to talk to them about readiness and preparation. And so when we begin to see that, we recognize that there is something inherent in the Jewish wedding custom that speaks to us very clearly of the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to share... Some of that with you this morning, because when we see that custom, a lot of passages of Scripture begin to fall into place. Some people think that arranged marriages in cultures that use arranged marriages, some people tend to think that those are always kind of dull, boring, I didn't get to pick. Uh, They view it as being opposed to romance. And they see it as just kind of a way to help the race get along. 
but but they don't see it as like in the West, you know, we we uh, cruise about looking for our mate and and we go through this courting thing and it starts with the look and then it uh, progresses to dating and and uh, all of the kinds of you know that build the romance and the suspense. Well, there's not so much of that anymore. You usually just get right to the bottom line. But but the whole concept is that if we don't get to pick, then somehow the the romance is not in the picture. That is not at all true. And if you talk to people from other cultures who have arranged marriages in their culture. Um, they don't necessarily say that that's true. In fact, one uh, Indian fellow who was a believer put it like this. He says, you people in the West, when you get married, it's like taking a boiling pot off the stove. And you set it aside and it starts cooling down. He says, for us, it's like putting a cold pot on the stove and turning on the fire. And he says, it just gets warmer and warmer as we go along. Well... I suppose that's one way to look at it. But the, but the reality is, is that even in the cultures uh, where marriages are arranged, very often, you know, the families have been friends, they've known each other, uh, the kids have played together, um, you know, the parents have talked, oh, don't you think Susie would be good for Johnny? And, you know, and they notice how they get along and, and those kinds of things, and then Finally, as, as the young ladies mature and, and the men grow into manhood and become responsible and capable of earning a living, you know, the, the families uh, will begin to talk seriously. And I'm sure that there's some conversation that goes on. I mean, can't, just, just think about a family. Can you imagine, you know, coming home and saying, well, Susie, I betrothed you off to Johnny today. What do you think of that? Johnny? Johnny who? You know, I, I rather imagine that there was a lot of conversation that went on. You know, what do you think of Susie? Johnny, how would you like for us to arrange for her? You know, or what do you think of that guy, Johnny, you've been, you've been hanging out with since your childhood? What, what, you think he'd make a nice husband for you, huh, honey? Can you imagine a mother never saying something like that to her daughter? I can't imagine that happening. There, there's that kind of interplay going on, and then the day comes when the families arrange for the marriage. And in Jewish culture, that was the betrothal. The families came together, the bride price was negotiated, it was determined, and a contract was entered into that was a binding contract. Now, what about this business of the bride price? Doesn't that cheapen women? Or, or you know, you're going to go buy a woman? I mean, is that, is that what the plan is? Not at all. In the, in the history of cultures that were dependent upon their families for their survival and their livelihood, imagine no Social Security. Imagine no government assistance. Imagine no nursing homes. <laughs> Imagine farming all by yourself. If you had sons, it wasn't a big problem because the sons grew up in the household largely taking on the family concerns and and responsibilities, inheriting the family land and possessions. And when they married a wife, they brought her back to their father's house. And she became part of the family. Well, what about the poor guy that's got daughters? What does that family do? 
the girls are leaving. And they're going to grow old without them. What's going to happen there? Who's going to help plow their fields and tend to their business? So there was a bridal price. And you paid that betrothal price or that bride price to the family that was losing the daughter as a form of compensation. We're gaining her, but we want to compensate you for your loss. And so they would come together and they would negotiate that bride price and they would settle on the contract and the families would enter into it. And from the Jewish perspective, once that had happened, that couple were contracted to marry End of story. Even if you broke that engagement, it was called divorce. And if either party were found to be unfaithful after the contract had been struck, it was considered adultery. You can imagine then the situation that Joseph found himself in when he learned that Mary was pregnant. And the scripture says, and here's where I know there was romance and compassion and all of that involved in those relationships, because he had every right to drag her into the town square, publicly accuse her, tear up the document of the betrothal, divorce her, and she was even subject to punishment. But the scripture says he did not want to put her openly to shame. You see the love going on there? He was saddened. He was grief-stricken, but he wanted to quietly dissolve the relationship with the families in a way that did not expose her to public humility. And it was then that an angel appeared to him in the night and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is not of human conception. This is out of the Holy Spirit. And his name is Jesus. This is Messiah. He's going to save his people from their sin. And Joseph was, oh, wonderful. You know, and he, by doing that, incidentally, took on the shame of Mary. You remember the comment that was made derisively about Jesus many years later in his ministry? Is this not the carpenter's son? Well, who would have married a pregnant woman out of wedlock? Who would have married her except the guy that was responsible? And so Joseph took on that shame. But there was that commitment such that if you broke the betrothal, it was a divorce. There was a contract. And then once that contract was negotiated, the the, the bride-to-be would go back with her parents for approximately a year. It wasn't exact, but it was about that time frame. Because that was enough time for the bridegroom to go back to his family and begin to make preparations. Remember, he's going to bring her home to dad. So what does he have to do? Well, it's no fun to sleep in the living room of your parents' house. So... He builds onto the house, either adding an addition or he builds another place on the family property. Where do you get property? Well, dad owns the property and I'm going to expand the residence. I'm going to create a place for my bride. 
I'm going to make a room for her. I'm going to give her some space. And we're going to live together in our part that I'm going to get ready. I'm going to make sure my business affairs are in order and I'm able and ready to take care of this woman. And when all of those preparations were complete, you know how communities are. There was no big secret. How's Johnny doing on the addition? Well, he's almost got the roof on. Well, it's dried in now. Well, how's he coming with his, uh, you know, with his part of the, well, he's doing pretty good with the farm. And, and so people kind of knew. And then, then the announcement would kind of ripple through the town. It's all finished. John's addition is complete. Susan's getting excited. It could be any day now. And once that kind of thing became known, then the bridal party would get ready on her side because when the bridegroom had the finishing touches, it's all complete and ready to receive my new bride, he would begin to go across town to the bride's home with his groomsmen and and the groom party and they would begin to travel across town there would be celebration there would be dancing in the streets there would be announcement somebody would be blowing a trumpet or a ram's horn or something and the bride's maids and the bride would hear the commotion and the trumpet would sound out and they would say the bridegroom is coming oh let's go meet him And they would all leave and rush out into the street to meet him. And there was this big celebration as the two parties came together. And then they would go back to the bridal area and they would have the marriage supper. And then they would exchange their vows under the the, the canopy, the covering, and they would make the commitment. And then he would take his bride home to his father's house where they would begin their life together. For the rest of their lives. Do you see some connections here? Do you see some amazing pictures? Jesus on the cross paid the price for us. And the scripture says for the joy set before him. The joy set before him. This is a man looking at his bride. The joy set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame, meaning he didn't even consider it worthy of of acknowledgement. He just cast it off because he was looking forward to the day when he would be together with his bride. And, And that payment on the cross made it possible. And then he gave us a guarantee He placed within us His Holy Spirit as the down payment, the guarantee that He would come again and redeem us, that we would be His and belong to Him. And in that betrothal, the Lord Jesus Christ invested in us the earnest of our salvation and said, one day I'm coming back for you. And when you look at the, the Scriptures that talk about the return of Jesus Christ, John chapter 14, that wonderful passage, 
where Jesus says to his disciples, he's just about to leave them. This is the final week, the final night. He's about to be crucified and he says, in my father's house, there is a lot of space. I'm going to get it ready for you. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They understood that. The son is going home to the father's house to prepare the space. And he says, and when I have made this ready, and it's all prepared, I am coming again for you. That where I am, there you can be also. This was a great encouragement to the disciples that there is going to be a time of waiting followed by a return when the Father's house has been prepared for the bride. And He's coming back. And when He comes back, do you know how that's going to happen? Oh, as the moment of that we've all been waiting for arrives, the bridegroom in this great, picture of heaven being rolled back like a scroll and, and this glorious image of the bridegroom on a beautiful white stallion with this great imagery of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there's going to be a trumpet sound. The bridegroom comes. The trumpet of God will sound. And the Scripture says every believer from all the ages who has died in faith and hope their bodies are going to be raised out of the ground in that moment. This is an amazing picture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The notes are in your study guide, but take a look at those passages. The dead in Christ shall rise first. I don't know how that's going to happen. It's not my problem. But somehow or another... The, all the people of all the ages, regardless of the condition of their bodies or lack of it, they're coming out of the ground clothed in resurrected, glorified flesh. Not imaginary flesh, not ghosts. I don't know where this imagery of us uh, having wings like angels and halos and running around strumming a harp. No wonder men hate church. It's not like that at all. This is real flesh, but it's glorified and it will never decay and never die. John says in his first letter, chapter 3, and we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. What is that like? What is He like in the resurrection? You remember when He appeared in the upper room? Thomas doubted the first time, so Thomas is there the second time. Jesus just shows up in the room. That's kind of cool. The, the doors and windows are closed, and there he is, but he's not a spirit. Because he says to Thomas, reach out your hand and touch me. You didn't believe it? Touch me. Touch the nail print in my hand. Touch my side. Put your hand where the sword was. Check me out. A spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and blood like you see me have. You put your hand against my skin, and it's going to stop. I'm real. Check me out. I'm resurrected. He ate with them. I don't know what happened to the food when he disappeared. Again, not my problem. There's mystery here that I... Man, it's too big for me. But 
They knew him. They recognized him. He was real. He was alive forevermore. And John says, we're going to be like him. We're going to know each other. We're going to recognize each other. We're going to, to, to remember. We're going to have all of that without the sadness, without the sorrow, without the sickness, without the pain, without the, the, the damaged relationships, without the heartbreak, without all of the things that have clouded our relationships here. We're going to see each other, know each other, and celebrate the joy of Jesus Christ together forever. Isn't that amazing? So the dead in Christ will be called out of the grave. They'll, they'll come out of the grave. They'll go up to meet Him in the air. What is that like? That's like the bridegroom heading across town to the bride's house. There's a fanfare. There's a troop. There's an entourage. The trumpet is sounding and the bride begins to hear the trumpet sound. And then the Scripture says, we which are alive, when that moment occurs, we will be caught up together with the Lord to meet Him in the air, we will be caught up in the clouds. Not clouds of moisture and water vapor. and No, it's clouds of resurrected people. I will never forget being in Greek class and my Greek teacher who was in her 80s and bent over and came to class with a walker. And she would sit at her desk and she would say, Mr. Martin, what is the antecedent of that pronoun? And I can remember her sitting there one day and saying, read your Greek. It's not clouds of the air, it's clouds of people. It's like, whoa, it is, it's, it's the clouds. There's going to be so many saints resurrected from the grave. It's going to be clouds filling the atmosphere of people going up. Now, their spirits are already there, but isn't that cool? There's going to be a double meeting going on in heaven. It's like spirit and body. Man, they're coming together right in the middle of this whole thing. And we're going to get sucked up with them. And in a moment, the writer uh, Paul says in Corinthians, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Somebody told me this morning that they had calculated that to be one fiftieth of a second. Okay. In the twinkling of an eye, we are going to be changed. The Greek word is metamorphosed. Like the caterpillar into the butterfly, we're going, to, we're going to instantly change into glorified clothing, glorified body, glorified person. We're not going to die anymore. All the pain's going to stop. All of the disease, all the sickness, all the problems... We're going to instantly be translated. We will never taste death if we're alive when Jesus comes back. We're going to be caught up together in the clouds of people to meet Him in the air. And there's going to be dancing in the heavens. There's going to be celebration. The shout, the bridegroom is coming back. And the Scripture says when that glorious, dramatic encounter occurs, then we're going to return with Him to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Man, there's going to be a wedding feast to beat all wedding feasts. There's going to be people of every tribe and tongue and nation, uh, of every color speaking every language from all the people groups all over the world. The bride of Christ, representative of every part of humanity of all the ages. Together with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you see it? 
And you know, when we get to that marriage supper, I don't know how that's going to work either. But we're not going to need translators. We won't have to wear headsets. And I don't think you're going to speak some new language. My, my buddy, Pastor Hector, downstairs thinks we're going to speak Spanish. He says English is the, love, is the language of technicians and French is the language of love. But Spanish, that's the language of heaven. And I don't think we're going to speak Spanish. But I think Hector's going to speak Spanish. That's his heart language. And I think that's what he's going to think he's doing. But I'm going to understand him completely. And French speakers are going to speak French and we're all going to know what they're saying. And all of us are going to be able to communicate without confusion what was done at Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is going to be undone at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we'll be together again speaking the language of our heart in ways that we all understand. The great divisions of human beings will be done away. It won't matter what color your resurrected skin is. You're going to be glorified in His presence at the marriage supper. Friends, it is a happy, joyous, marvelous, wonderful time. Look with me in Revelation chapter uh, 19, Revelation chapter 19. Now, I want you to just uh, look there and listen as I read because the wording is so important, so beautiful. Revelation 19, verse 6. Hallelujah. That means praise Jehovah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in the linen bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the words of God, the true words of God. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. And he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here is the bridegroom and the bride. And says, let us rejoice for the Lord God, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Friends, this is no somber celebration. I don't know who's providing the special music, but there's special music. The angels are singing. The feast is prepared. I don't know what we're going to eat, but we're going to be eating something because Jesus said, this supper, this wine, this bread, I'm going to eat it with you in the kingdom when I come again. So we're going to have a feast. We're going to have a great spread with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're, can you imagine what that's going to be? Just think about it. We're going to be face to face with Jesus. We're going to be with our loved ones who have gone before. We're going to be in a reunion time. We're going to be together. 
Tuesday afternoon when I got the call that Ruth had had a heart attack and she was being taken to Northwest. And she had gotten on the phone Tuesday morning with me and she sounded so bad and she was having such a hard time. And she said, I just want to go home to be with Jesus. I'm just so miserable. And, and I said, Ruth, I, I, you know, I give up. I'm going to pray for you, Lord. And I prayed, Lord, if you're not going to heal Ruth, she wants to come home. Give her release and bring her home. Then I get this phone call that she's been taken to North just within hours with a heart attack. And I thought, oh, Lord. And it made me weep. I hate death. I just hate death. It's not natural. It's not natural. Evolutionists are crazy. It has nothing to do with, with life. It's the antithesis of everything God is. And I just hate it. Praise God, He apparently has healed her. The other side of the prayer. Just amazing. So I get to keep her a while. I love her dearly because she's such a sweet person. She's easy to love. She just radiates Jesus. But I love her for another very selfish reason. She prays for me and she prays for my family every day. And I just don't want to lose an intercessor. So, Lord, keep her going. You know. But when we get there, all the loved ones of all the ages, eventually death is going to part us. But there's a reunion. There's a reunion. Paul said to the Thessalonians, we sorrow, but not like those without hope. Man, the parting is sad, but the reunion is coming. We're going to be together. The glorious bride and the great son of man. Isn't that, an, isn't that a glorious picture? And even in the end of Revelation, we get to the New Jerusalem, we find out that even that is an image, a metaphor of the bride adorned for her husband. And people think, again, heaven is going to be this crazy place where we float around in the clouds with wings and halos and harps. But the Bible says it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the New Jerusalem is going to come to dwell upon this earth the bride adorned for her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And we're going to live together the way He intended it. Do you see the love story? Love was lost, but it's been recovered. And now the, the, the marriage long awaited has occurred, and God and His people are together forever. In a new heaven and in a new earth. And man, we're going to get to be on, on this new earth and, and the way it was intended to be as Adam and Eve walked in the garden and they saw these beautiful things. Have you noticed the tulips? I mean, have you really looked at the tulips? Have you picked one up and, and just focused your eye down into the... The color is amazing. And the inside and the outside of the petal are different. And millions of things like that in this planet. Incredible. But this is going to be a new one. And as they walked with... God, in the cool of the day, they saw His glory in everything that He had made. And we're going to have eternity. John and I were having a conversation the other night, and we were talking about all the things that we'd like to do. What do you, what do you, what do you spend your life doing? Because when you want to do everything, how, you, how do you get it all fit in? How can you do everything there is? Well, guess what? 
we're going to be together with Jesus Christ and there will be no time limitation. You'll want to study this for a while. You can do it for a few thousand years and then when you get interested in something else, you can do something else. We're not going to just hang out uh, in some angelic choir singing Amazing Grace for a million years. Yes, there will be intimacy and fellowship and worship with God, but it's going to be as I explore the vastness of the new heavens and the new earth and the creation with my Lord Jesus Christ and with you as we together dance in the streets that are golden and explore the paths of the new earth and I hope fly to the expanses of the new heavens and see all the grandeur that God has made. It's a divine romance. And Jesus Christ has paid the bride price in his blood. And he's looking forward to a wedding feast. And we're going to be there. And man, is it going to be good. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings us. That you love us. That you love us. And that you want us to be with you eternally. Lord Jesus, you are preparing the place even now in your Father's house. And when it's all ready, you'll come and get us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.